here's some, some announcements. Which she'll do because she's so professional. I'm more professional than you, but anyway. Um, so firstly, join us for a special satsang celebration for Davy Ma's birthday in two weeks' time on September the 18th. And I believe that that actually is her birthday, so it's doubly auspicious. And on September the 25th, we have a free live satsang, and this means that it's available for everyone to watch online, no charge. And I think it's a great promotion. It's a really great chance to invite your family and friends to participate and to watch satsang. Then we have our Ganeshpuri weekend, weekend and intensive on the 1st to the 3rd of October. And it's also Baba's Mahasamadhi celebration on the Saturday. And bookings are now open as of tonight. And you can visit satsanglive.com.au for details. And finally, don't miss out on our free upward shift meditations on Instagram. And they're happening daily during lockdown, which don't worry, it's going to go on for a while. And they are at 8.30 every morning Melbourne time with our ashram teachers. And I think we've been roped in to do some of those as well. Yeah, I think, I think we're, even, we're going to participate in that. Once again, welcome everyone. I like to begin my programs by always... Quoting my guru, Baba Muktananda, who began his programs by saying in Hindi, With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would say that the essence of spirituality is this simple movement of the heart, this welcome with love. So in that spirit, I welcome you all. I welcome everybody watching in Radio Land, uh, all around the world, we're afflicted by this plague, and uh, <clears throat> what the great beings say about that is, have patience, endure it, everything changes, everything comes around, uh, everything is a, uh, is a vehicle of sadhana or of growth, and so work with it in that way. Um, Tonight, I do my, I'm doing my uh, endless uh, series on the great beings, great souls. I like to do mostly my guru, Baba Muktananda, and his guru, Bhagwan Nityananda, but I also do a, a rotation of great beings, some of which I've met, and some of which influence me in other ways through, uh, through reading. Um, and tonight, uh, it's a great being that I met on one occasion in Bombay, Mumbai, um, and his name was Nisargadatta Maharaj, a very intense jnani. It means he was a practitioner of the path of wisdom, and that's just the way he looked, and his eyes would bore through you, but there was always a great humor behind them, but quite scary also. <coughs> Nisargadatta Maharaj was a country boy, and like many country boys, the young man from the provinces, he went to the big smoke, the big city, to make his way and make his fortune. And so he came to Bombay from the country, uh, and he began a business, and his business was selling cigarettes, selling beadies, country cigarettes. Uh, and he did a good job at that, and he soon had a, uh, several uh, beady stands around Bombay. 
And then a thing happened, which I'm sure that many of you can relate to. The spiritual bug hit him. This is uh, an, an epidemic, something like COVID. However, it hasn't gone around the world that much. And uh, uh, <clears throat> I would like this particular epidemic to spread everywhere. Uh, but at the right time, in the voyage of the soul from birth to death, uh, in case of some people, this awakening takes place, a sudden interest in things of the spirit, sudden interest in the inner self, a sudden interest in knowing God, knowing uh, the absolute, a certain interest in asking questions like, who am I and what is this all about? Most of the time we spend our, our lives like wind-up dolls, just going through the paces that we've been programmed to do. We're going to do this, get this, or that, and that, and that, and that, and we don't question uh, why we do that. We do it because we're programmed to do it. The culture tells us, our parents tell us, the TV tells us to do these things. But occasionally uh, it happens in the, in the course of some people's lives, and most of the people who are watching tonight have been through a process similar to this. A question arises, what is this all about, really? What's the meaning of this behind all these superficial things? Is there something deeper? Is there something beyond the mundane? And then the spiritual awakening happens. <clears throat> so that happened to Nasagadatta Maharaj, as I'm sure it happened to many of us, probably all of us here. Um, and the Saradatta uh, started to look around to the various spiritual teachers. And of course, he was living in uh, Bombay in, in uh, the 30s, and there were loads of uh, spiritual teachers, gurus, swamis, and so on. And he started going around from one to the other, and he finally connected with one who, whose teaching made a lot of sense to him. It was a, a yani, uh, a a pursuer of the path of uh, intellect, the path of knowledge. And he studied with him, and he didn't see him that much. He, he spent a few years with him, but not living with him. He would visit him when he could. Uh, and the teacher said one thing. He said, meditate on I am. Meditate on the, the thought I am move from the thought I am to the feeling I am so that you're in feeling yourself as you are and hold that feeling. And he did that assiduously. He did it for a number of years. <clears throat> and uh, finally attained the goal of being established in the self. Meanwhile, he was selling cigarettes, poisoning people. Um, we had a little accident here. So anyway, where was I? He. Uh, so then he uh, he uh, he was practicing and he just continued his life, and then he started talking differently, strangely, to his friends. And pretty soon they wanted to hang around with him and hear his teachings about Vedanta and about the self and about the absolute. 
And uh, pretty soon it became formalized, and every night he would talk to them. They had a little chanting, and, uh, and they'd come. Uh, and over the course of a number of years, uh, quite a following uh, grew up, and they taped the talks, and then they created a book called I Am That, one of the great classics, Dialogues with Nisargadatta. Uh, and he became quite world famous. So this is one of the dialogues with Sri Nasagadatta Maharaj. Do you want to see the other two photos? <clears throat> yes, I would love to see the other two photos. Let's look at them. I love that photo, though. This is, this is what he looked like when I met him. He'd sit, he sat there in his seat, and he was uh, talking to me humorously. <laughs> I spoke English. He spoke Marathi. We, uh, but we understood each other anyway. And he was very humorous somehow. And next... This is uh, what a satsang looked like with Maharaj. Pictures of the saints, of his guru on the wall, uh, and then some of his friends coming in, and he was holding forth. Uh, his style was very feisty and argumentative uh, and emphatic and fascinating. So this is one of those question answers with him. <clears throat> by, the, uh, by the time that I met him, quite a few Westerners uh, had heard about him and were, were coming up, especially from uh, the Ramana Ashram in Arunachala, and they'd visit, spend time there. But he never had an ashram. He always, had, he always lived private life and opened his uh, doors uh, to uh, the public every evening. So here we go. Nisargadatta Maharaj, question. Are you ever glad or sad? Do you know joy and sorrow? Um, so that's not a question normally you ask somebody. You assume they do, but uh, Maharaj seemed to be in such an exalted state that this question arose. Maharaj says, of course I experience joy and sorrow, but I also know that these are states of mind and don't affect my true nature. So now we're back to what uh, Yogi Sri and uh, Vani were talking about. The two narratives, the Jiva narrative and the Shiva narrative. There's the tension of these two things, the personal, the personal story, our personal story, and then the higher narrative, which is hidden and yet very real. And the Sagadatta, like, the greatest, like all the sages, stands for the highest narrative. They stand for the narrative that I am the self. I am the self. I am not this body and this, my personal drama. I am the self. So they stand for that. That's why they're such unusual beings. Everybody else we meet stands for their personal reality, the personal or the jiva narrative. But the great beings stand for the higher narrative, and they thrill us, they excite us because we sense that that same narrative is within us. And that is what we've been looking for in all the external ways. That is the, the understanding that can lift us. So remember that when you hear the dialogue, you'll see that he's always standing for this higher narrative and trying to insinuate us into that narrative, to stop thinking about us as a pathetic, uh, loser, hopeless creature who has needs to complete himself in so many different ways and is never going to do it. But the other narrative, which is you're already 
a glorious divine being. This one is what he wants us to get. <clears throat> Question, is love a state of mind? <laughs> Maharaj, again, it depends what you mean by love. Desire, of course, is a state of mind. But the realization of unity is beyond mind. To me, nothing exists by itself. All is the self. All is myself. To see myself in everybody and everybody in myself most certainly is love. And this is the great message of Shaivism, the interconnectedness of all things. All things are interconnected through spirit, through consciousness. They're all part of the one. They're all different waves in the oneness. And to see things that way is what he's calling love, to see the oneness of everything. Question, when I see something pleasant, I want it. Who exactly wants it, the self or the mind? <clears throat> I think the question has been to talk to Maharaj before, you know, because he's got the, the kind of language. Maharaj says, there is desire, fear, and anger. And the mind says, this is me, this is mine. That's, in short, the, the jiva narrative, isn't it? This is me, this is mine. How, and, and there's something I want to make mine. And there's this stuff, might, I might lose what is mine already, so there's a tension. However, the self does not say that. Knows it identified with the desire, fear, and anger. From the perspective of the self, these are all states perceived and named by the mind. So these states go on, desire, fear, and anger, but the self is not identified with them. Question, but is there such a thing as perceiving without naming? So he's saying we name these things. Maharaj says, of course, nothing is done at the level of the mind while perceiving, no, I'm sorry, naming is done at the level of the mind while perceiving is consciousness itself. It's the difference between a mental understanding, labeling something, and the direct experience of that thing. That difference he's talking about. Question, when somebody dies, what exactly happens? That's a big leap in the questioner. <laughs> Maharaj, nothing happens. Something becomes nothing. Nothing was, nothing remains. This is pure Vedanta. Nothing ever happened. Nothing exists. There's nothing. Question, surely there's a difference between living and the dead. You speak of the living as dead and of the dead as living. Sometimes I feel a lot of sympathy for his questioners because when he makes an extreme thing like nothing happens when you die, nothing becomes nothing, surely he's going too far afield. So they're a little frustrated. Maharaj now says, Why do you fret at one man dying and care little for the millions dying every day? Entire universes are imploding and exploding every moment. Am I to cry over them? One thing is quite clear to me. All that is lives and moves and has its being in consciousness. And I am in and of that consciousness. 
I am in that consciousness as the witness, and I am part of consciousness as being. I'm that which watches, and I'm also being the experience of that, that consciousness. So he, he's saying, he's again pointing to a higher way of looking at it. It's a higher way of looking at it. For most of us, the personal narrative is the real one. You know, that's the real one. And this is so far away, but here's a being, a person, who lives that higher narrative. So he's always trying to get us to acknowledge that and be with that. And so the question is again frustrated because he, you know, he's, he's asking him to make a leap that, that he's not ready to. So he says, surely you care when your child is ill, don't you? Like you are a person, aren't you? You're scaring me. You're freaking me out. Be a person. So Maharaj says, of course I do. But I don't get flustered. I do the needful. I do not worry about the future. Because our attachment makes us hysterical and we're ineffective then. But he, because of where he stands, of course he's concerned, but he does what needs to be done. A right response to every situation is in my nature. If we were to live from our center, we would be much more effective. Of course, our responses would not be generated by fear and attachment, but they would be natural responses to what happened. Maharaj says, I do not stop to think what to do. I act and move on. I try to not to think of results. We're always worrying about bad outcomes, and that inhibits us. But if you just do what's necessary, you're not there. He says, whatever they are, they are. And if they come back to me, I deal with them afresh. So if something bad happens, I meet it then. I don't have to think about it in advance and get caught in worry and so on. But now he talks about himself. My main purpose is to remember the self. I recognize that things happen not because I make them happen, but because I am. Because I am. From the highest perspective, nothing ever happens. There's only consciousness itself. And that's all it is. At every moment, there's consciousness. When there's a universe, it's just within consciousness. It goes away. It's like a dream that you dream at night. Nothing's really happening. Just a dream flicks across your mind, and it disappears back into the mind. So that's the way the universe is. He says... When the mind is restless, it makes Shiva dance. Like the restless waters of the lake make the moon dance. When, when, uh, when there's wind on the lake, the reflection of the moon uh, dances. What's the word? It shimmers. And that's because the moon, the, the lake is moving from the wind. The moon is not moving, but the lake is. So when the mind's restless, when the mind's restless, the world looks very agitated. It is all appearance due to wrong ideas. So now he's saying, here's where he's pointing that to the great statement that Baba emphasized from the Yoga Vashishta, the world is as you see it. This is extraordinary. 
This is a life-changing understanding, um, and the spiritual seeker has to come to understand it, which is that the world is shaped by our perception of it. The world is shaped by our attitude towards it. The world is shaped by our feeling, by our emotion. The world that we see is conditioned by how we are. We can't separate those two. And we think we're being objective, but it's actually our subjectivity that determines what we're seeing. He says, <laughs> but the, de the devotee is still upset by it. He says, please tell me that you care about what happens to your child. See, that's why I say, good on you, I say, good, give it to him. Make him, make him talk about it. Maharaj says, of course I do, I love my child, but I also understand how the universe works, and I don't fight against it. I accept it. <clears throat> Reminds me of Epictetus, who we've talked about in the past. He said that the, the, the way to a happy life is to accept things that you can't control. Don't try to push against things that are outside your control. Surrender to them. So he's saying, I flow with the way the universe is. You're a very small, weak little person as an individual to stand up to a whole universe that's careening in its own direction. Much better to go with the flow of it. That's what he's saying there. Question, even though you say that nothing happens, you're aware of many things and behave according to their nature. You treat a child as a child and an adult as an adult. He's saying, he's saying you say all these big, spacious things about reality, but you still act normally. You, you don't think of an adult as a child and a child as an adult. You act like a person. Question, Maharaj. I see what you see, and I feel what you feel. So he meets him, and he says, okay, you're getting nervous, and I'm, try I'm trying to say that I'm different from you. No, I'm not different from you. Well, I am different in a certain way, but not that way. I see what you see. I feel what you feel, and now comes a great statement. But every experience also shows me the self. When you attain a certain state of consciousness, whatever happens points you to the self. It doesn't separate you from the self. Even bad things turn you more fully to the self so that every experience shows God. So everything, God is showing himself all the time in every way, no matter what arises. This is what Maharaja's experience is. He says, just as the taste of salt pervades the great ocean, and every single drop of seawater carries the same flavor. So every experience gives me a, the touch of reality, the ever-fresh realization of my own being. Everything that happens shows him the inner self, shows him divinity. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Question, do I exist in your world? As you exist in mind, again, in my, again, getting nervous. What are you saying? <clears throat> Maharaj, of course. You are, and I am. But remember, we're nothing apart from consciousness. 
We are points in consciousness. This must be well grasped. The world hangs on the thread of consciousness. If there is no consciousness, there is no world. All we know is through consciousness. Take away consciousness from the world, there's nobody there to notice it. It's hurtling through something without anybody knowing it's there, so it may as well not exist, and probably doesn't. So everything exists in consciousness. Question, there are many points in consciousness, are there as many worlds? Maharaj, there are many imaginary worlds. Take dream for an example. In a hospital, there may be many patients, all sleeping, all dreaming, each dreaming his own private, personal dreams, unrelated, unaffected, having one single factor in common, illness. In the same way, we've divorced ourselves in our imagination from the real world of common experience. We've forgotten about the oneness and enclosed ourselves in a cloud of personal desires and fears, images and thoughts, ideas and concepts. It's a wonderful um, depiction. So this is, each of us is dreaming our dream. What is our dream? A dream is our litany of desires, fears, ideas, concepts, positions, and we live and die by them, and we take them seriously, and we assert them and affirm them, and we're offended by somebody else. And especially in this time, everybody's got an opinion, very strong opinion, and, uh, and everyone's living their dream, he says. And in living that personal dream full of opinions and beliefs and all this stuff, we lose sight of the big picture the picture of consciousness, of the interrelatedness of all things, of the place of love and, and awareness. Question. This I can understand, but what is the cause of the tremendous variety of the personal worlds? How come we are so, all so different? Good question, isn't it? Why are we all so different? One person likes this team, another person likes that team. <clears throat> One person likes red, another likes blue. Why is it? Why are we like that? <clears throat> Maharaj, the variety is not so great. All the dreams are superimposed over a common world. To some extent, these dreams shape and influence each other. Whoever the basic unity operates in spite of all. At the root of it all, lies self-forgetfulness, not knowing who I am. So the root of all the separateness is forgetting who we are. But also this reminds me of one of the sutras in the Pratyabhignarodayam that says that even when there's separation and ignorance and mala, uh, still the fire of consciousness is there operating. So it means that even when we're ignorant, the self is there. We're still moved by that which is compassionate, that which is beautiful, that which is uplifting. We're still 
we still have some connection with that. We just haven't paid enough attention to it. He goes on, he says, question says, to forget one must know. Did I know who I am before I forgot it? <clears throat> Did you know who you were before you forgot it? Is, is, uh, is ignorance something uh, that's new that we superimposed over our, our prior knowledge? <clears throat> question, um, answer, Maharaj. Of course, not knowing your self is contained or inherent in knowing yourself. Consciousness and unconsciousness are two aspects of one life. They coexist. To know the world, you forget the self. To know the self, you forget the world. What is the world after all? A collection of memories. Cling to the one thing that matters. Now he's giving the upadesh, which means the teaching, what to do. Cling to the one thing that matters, the I am. He's giving the teaching that his guru gave. Baba would say, remember the self. Baba's teaching was always, meditate on the self, remember the self. Touch, touch in with that. Don't leave the self out of the equation. Don't leave the higher reality out of the equation. Never be so absorbed in the mundane and the personal that you forget the divine. Never, ever. And so he's saying, cling to the one thing that matters, the I am. Hold on to the I am and let go all else. Hold on to the self. Hold on to the mantra. Hold on to the guru. Hold on to the truth. It's all the same thing. This is sadhana, spiritual practice. In realization, there's nothing to hold on to and nothing to forget. Everything is known in the direct experience of reality. So in sadhana, he's saying, is an effort to hold that truth. When you realized, you don't have to do anything because you are absorbed in that. There's nothing to do because you live in that, that truth. But until you're in that place, you have to make a conscious effort to hold on to it, moment to moment, day by day. <clears throat> and so this is the teaching. Remember the self. That's the teaching of all the great sages. Remember the highest. And then they, they have specific methods. Each one has a different method. Maharaj says, think of I am. Baba says, think of the self, say the mantra, think of the guru's feet. Uh, someone else says, think of Krishna. Someone else says uh, something else, but uh, it's all the same thing. Think of that which is beyond uh, the mundane experience. Question, why do we forget ourselves, Maharaj? In the highest sense, there's no real forgetting. I love this. This is the vision of the great beings. No problem. The people come to, to uh, Bhagwan Nityananda full of uh, uh, frenzy, you know, help me, help me. And from his perspective, everything's okay. It's all perfect. It's all the way it is. And so from the highest perspective, 
no problem. Um, <clears throat> he says, mental states succeed one another, and each obliterates the previous one. Isn't that a great depiction of uh, the way the mind is? One, your mind is a river of different thoughts and feelings. Isn't it true? In quick succession. Now happy, now sad, now scared, now miserable, now delighted, now absorbed, now scattered. And it just goes on and on and on. And whatever's playing in that moment obliterates what played before. You know, you can be in very happy one minute, somebody says something nasty to you, you're caught in misery. Totally caught, like the happiness never existed. He says, self-remembering is a mental state and self-forgetting is another one. They alternate like day and night. Reality is beyond both. So this flux that happens, behind it is the one reality, is the true self. Question, is it not a calamity to forget oneself? Maharaj says, it's also a calamity to remember one's personal self continuously. So if you're just caught in your personal self, that's a calamity. <clears throat> There's a state beyond forgetting and not forgetting, the natural state. To remember, to forget, these are states of the mind, thought-bound, word-bound. <clears throat> This is, this is, I'm going to have to keep some of this back. Let's see where I'm going to end it. A sip. Hmm? Have a sip. I'll have a sip. Okay. Okay, I'm going to... I figured it out. He says, take, for example, the idea of being born. I'm told I was born. I do not remember being born. I think most of us don't remember being born. Unless you've been rebirthed, then you remember being born, right? but otherwise not. <clears throat> I'm told I shall die. I do not expect it. You tell me I've forgotten or I lack imagination, but from my standpoint, the self, birth never happened, and death is an impossibility. <laughs> He's saying that at death, at death, you will be surprised that you continue on. Your awareness continues on. You continue on. You just go through a doorway. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> and so you never die, because consciousness can never die. Uh, you will probably get rid of certain things, like your body. Uh, he says, bodies are born and bodies die. But what is that to me? <laughs> it means your body born and died, but what is that to me? Bodies come and go in consciousness, and consciousness itself has its roots in me. I am life and mind and body are not, I am life and mind and body are not me, but they are mine. Body, body belongs to me, I don't belong to the body. If, if the body dies, I continue on. <clears throat> Question, how can you claim to be beyond the human experience and all suffering? Maharaj, I followed my guru's instructions and I worked very hard. Great line. So the guru said, you are this higher truth. 
And he said, this man is, seems wise to me. He, he seems to be standing in a different posture, a different position vis-a-vis -vis the world than I do, and he seems happy and illumined. And what he's teaching me, I will value that, cherish, and I'll work with it. So he worked hard at the practice that his guru gave him, and it worked. And he says, after all that work, he says, I discovered what was already mine from the beginning without any effort. So after all that work, he discovered what he'd already had. Baba says, getting rid of what you haven't got. Ignorance is getting rid of what you haven't got. You're always the self before, during, and after. It's a, it's a paradox, but you have to work damn hard to start to know that. <clears throat> he says, I make no claims to have something that you do not have. I'm not different. I'm not constructed differently from you. I'm the same as you. I just listened to what my guru said, and I did the work. He goes on, reality can neither be proved nor disproved. Within the mind, you cannot prove it. Beyond the mind, you need not prove it. You're just in it. In the real, the question, what is real, does not arise. The manifest world, the saguna, and the unmanifest world, nirguna, are not different. From the highest perspective, whether there's world or just pure awareness, same thing. Question, in that case, all is real, Maharaj. As consciousness, I am all. As myself, all is real. Apart from me, nothing is real. <clears throat> it goes on. I'm going to stop it there. And we'll meditate. And we'll meditate on the essence of what Maharaj as outlined. <clears throat> the teaching is really very simple when you get down to it. Um, and we can't, and it, it's always the same, and we can't hear it enough times because it takes a long time to truly absorb it. And what the sages are saying is that every single person has this place within in reality, everyone is looking for love, everyone is looking for fulfillment, everyone is looking for approval, everyone is looking for security, everyone is looking for joy and for happiness, everyone is looking for love and peace. And the sages say that that exists always within us and only within us. The illusion that the world gives us is that we can find it externally. But even a little thought will show that whatever our means, external means, whether it's a flashy car or Miss Wright or Mr. Wright or a big job or a lot of money, whatever it is, the feeling will be inside us. So the yogis say, access that place directly. You don't have to go through all these external things. You can live your life. Nobody's saying you shouldn't. 
but access the place of peace, the place of fulfillment, the place of joy directly. And that's within the power, our power to do it. But we have to want to do it. It's that one sentence, I listened to my guru and I did the work. We have to have that much mumakshutva, the desire to know the self. We have to have that much. Otherwise, we'll get lost in the dream, the dream of individuality and the mundane dream. But at least when we meditate, we can focus on the self. So for 10 minutes, let's meditate on the inner self, the self within, the part of us that's divine, the part of us that's already fulfilled, the part of us that has within it contentment and joy. No matter how difficult your life may be now, however restless you are, tormented by the lockdown, tormented by uh, all the fears and anxieties that life brings, still, if you go right to the center of your being, into the core of your beingness, you'll find this joy and love. Because that's the way you're made. That's who you are. That's true of every one of us. So for 10 minutes, let's meditate on the self. And once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satguru Nath Maharaj Ki Jai. In honor of Maharaj, let's start with the focus on I am. The turn within and say to yourself, I am. Many times a day you say those words, I am. And so say, I am. But you never think, what is this I am? So hold that thought, I am, and see where it points to within yourself. Now feel it. When you move from thinking to feeling, you're moving closer to the core of your being. So now feel the I amness. Feel that. Hold that. Ramana Maharshi used to say, hold the self. Hold the feeling of I am. And relax into it. Don't struggle to hold it, just relax into the feeling of I am. And we'll meditate on that I am on the self for 10 minutes. 